Hello and welcome to the Modern Reformer podcast. The mission of the Modern Reformer is the edification of the saints through the recovery of the historic faith. I'm your host, Mitchell Roten, joined by my co-host and brother, and brother <laughs> in the flesh and in the Lord, mm. Avery Roten. What are, what are you? Oh yeah, ahoy. We have convinced Nathan Skeens to return. Thank goodness. Hopefully to bring some clarity. Tell everybody hi, Nathan. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Nathan has returned. You're speaking to tens of people right now. <laughs> I appreciate all of you for listening. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That, amen there. We have returned to the law of God, which I don't think is eschatological. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Do you ever do you ever actually leave the law of God though? No, in some sense you do not. No, that's it, a good point. It remains. So we've covered the first four points of chapter nineteen. Uh, kind of a kind of a summary might be the classic reform position of the threefold use and then the threefold division. So do a little recap there. Uh, go ahead there, Nathan. You like. I feel like you're the I man thought you would go first. Oh, okay, I'll go first. That's yeah. fine. You want to get the uses? Yeah. So, no, let's go with the divisions. Okay, let's so start. I'll go with the divisions. So okay. what you see confessed in the first four points is the moral law of God and the tripartite division. Tripartite. Tripartite. Yeah. So you see three different types of law given in the Old Testament. You have the moral law, which is baked into creation and the very character of God. We see that in point one. It's given to Adam, written upon his heart. So because of God and his relationship to creation as God, Inside of that, his character is baked into it. Let's let's talk about that real quick, because the the natural objection is the Ten Commandments didn't come until Moses. What are you talking about? Yeah, so the Ten Commandments are in operation and just not pinned. Right. So, so they're so and we talked about this last time, but it's wrong for Cain to kill Abel. He understands that uh, Adam inherently because of his relationship as a creature to the one the one triune created God understands that adultery, wrong, lying, all those ten. Let's get in the garden. Let's be honest. There is some challenging questions in that. It, it doesn't nullify the, the moral, uh, objective, moral, universal application, you might say, of God to his creature. Yeah. But um, one that, that's very poignant, I think, is the sexual ethics, the things that do in, in some ways get revised you might say or expanded maybe more detailed in the mosaic code so okay yeah. so when lot and his daughters it's it's clear that that's painted in a negative light for example mm-hmm. um but at the same time uh maybe i think you could argue that abraham and hagar is also painted in a pretty negative light uh, yeah but there is a different sexual understanding maybe of the relationships right um before yeah. moses but it doesn't it doesn't abrogate the universal moral code, you might say. Um, yeah. So anyway, that that's just one example, and there, there's numerous. So what we're saying is kind of a big picture. Yeah. To get down in the weeds of every specific application does would take a lot more time. But yeah, so that's that's a good point. So Jesus says from the beginning has not been so. I agree. agree. Greater than man, man and woman. Yeah, he doesn't go to Moses. Yeah. So he says the creation order itself is binding. Mm-hmm. So because God created this one man, one woman in union, Christ, it, which is a good hermeneutic to have the same one that he has, he says that's binding upon all flesh. He, uh, the definition of marriage is from Correct, creation. from creation. So uh, you see a, a recording <laughs> of a lot of deviant sexual ethics inside of Scripture, such mm-hmm. as uh, rape 
uh, I mean, multiple things. You can read Judges. I mean, I mean, you can hear the recording of that. It doesn't mean that God gives credence to it. Right. So, but I guess what I mean, a good example is Abraham and Sarah, their close relationship fam- familially. And yeah. Then, so you and, have and the, Isaac yeah. and Jacob the same. So it's it's not directly abrogated until the time of Moses. That, that right. close familial union. You the might siblings. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's good that Abraham and Sarah are probably brother and sister. Yeah, probably. Probably. Uh, so you see also that. So there's not a prohibition of that from creation. That's added, and that's still binding. And that's yeah. So the point is, yeah. The only reason I bring that up is because uh, I think we understand that that would take a lot of doing to. to yeah. So the but, application is far flung. And then, yeah. Yeah. But I would go to Romans one and two is where I would go to. to For sure. To yeah. Two. The natural law given upon all men. Yeah. So, yeah. For all time. Yeah. So that's the moral law. And then you also see given to Moses on Sinai ceremony and judicial laws. Okay. Uh, the ceremonial is in you think of the holiness code. What is that? Leviticus 19 through something. You're going to see that these are given to the nation of Israel for them to be set apart. And then you can look at the, the different fulfillments in the New Testament of this, such as the dietary restrictions and the inclusion of the Gentiles. So we see that ceremonial law given to that for a type of, um, for a foreshadow and a picture of Christ. Those are now fulfilled and abrogated in the New Testament. You also see uh, sundry judicial laws, right? <laughs> lots of laws given for the nation of Israel. Uh, those are tied to the commonwealth as long as that's an operation of a commonwealth. It is no longer an operation. So what binds all now is the application of the law. You also see that in Corinthians and First Corinthians and First Timothy, Paul uses that <clears throat> as its principle to say this is uh, reflecting. This is an application of the moral law. So the application given in the judicial law is uh, is binding upon all men. That application is binding because it is an application of the moral law. So we can say that it's not um, that manslaughter, for example, can't be a category. Or this is a better better thing. Let's say that so. Thou shalt not kill. We say that means you cannot take any human life for any purpose. And then you read the judicial law and it says, yeah, you can't take it for this purpose. So that application is binding. So we have to have, in our understanding, an understanding of war, an understanding of manslaughter, and the different severities of murder, because that's all baked into the, given as a as an equity, as a principle to the nation of Israel. Right, and you do, you do see that in the the exodus in yeah the, in, in the, the law in, in the, the torah ex- yeah. in the expansion i think the entire idea of the difference say between premeditated murder um and then just a murder of passion yeah. and then just manslaughter that entire thing comes directly from the from ap- scripture yeah and i think the key here is to see that you can say thou shall not kill which actually means thou shall not murder yeah murder <laughs> in this specific way yeah yeah so without that expansion it's um God doesn't leave it broad, mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Yeah, so you can't come and say, I don't have a category, I don't think we should go to war, mm-hmm. and I don't think there should be manslaughter. And you say, well, because of the, the commandment, thou shalt not kill. You don't get to do that. Right, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And you don't because God speaks Because more. God speaks, and then he more. clearly reveals that in the judicial law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So, and on top of that, the fact that, yeah, that commandment specifically, like, like you said, Mitchell, that means thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. I mean, well, for the word, sure. The word Rotsack does not mean specifically just kill in general. Mm. Well, thank you for that. That's I mean, good. And again, you would not you would not get the clarity that you get if you were to just say, all we need is the 10, because that's a big thing. Yeah, the 10's a summary, right? The 10's a summary, 
and uh, without the expansion, mm-hmm. they they can be over broadened and yeah. not not rightly applied. Yep, agreed. Yeah. Yeah, another one, one more thing. Another great example is adultery. Right. So that doesn't just mean right the taking right. of another man's wife. It's sexual morality. Sexual in general. morality. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's going to be defined for you there as well. Which is, of course, why Jesus can then extend that out beyond just the actual Right, of course, action. because it's moral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's binding upon all. That's a great point. Yeah. So it is a, it is a point of uh, systematic theology, you might say, more of a necessarily contained point. <laughs> but I tied it together. Yeah. Yeah. So it, actual, yeah. You got you got to have it. I'd say it's explicitly stated. It, I don't it, even it think is. it's necessarily contained. It's just a grouping and understanding of a full picture. Yeah. So the three threefold division: moral, judicial, ceremonial. Yeah. The judicial being, in some sense, taken away with the Commonwealth of Israel, but yeah. the general equity or general equity just means the principle, basic principle contained the, the moral, application the of moral, the moral, the moral yeah. principle. And of course, the confession states that although there may not necessarily be a judicial punishment in the same sense, the the judicial law still exists in a moral sense. The equity, so yeah, it is still it is still there, and that's the way it's used in the New Testament. So, uh, the application, the moral law. The, so when Christ says, if you love me, keep my commandments, the commandments of which he means is a full-throated Old Testament commandment. It's the same moral law and duty of the Old Testament that he's saying command that he's commanding you to obey in the New. So that morality, we'll get at that point five, but that morality is just assumed on the New Testament. He doesn't, it doesn't say, hey, I have to go back and tell you that adultery is wrong, that, that and all these other things. Um, it, it, he, he, he cites it and says you should just know this by the application. Agreed. I wonder if that this is a complete, almost a side note, which I apologize being this early and getting into a side note. But <laughs> do you think he got into that on the road to Emmaus? Something tells me he did. <laughs> yeah. Would you not have loved to have been there? I would have. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been the world's greatest seminary right there. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the threefold division, moral, ceremonial, judicial, and then the threefold use. So threefold use um, would specifically uh, refer to the three ways in which the law is used for the believer. I think we did have a little discussion beforehand kind of <laughs> about uh, whether or not that actually then we apply that beyond the believer. But uh, specifically in the life of the believer. Um, it's what they're focused on in the confession. That's really the main yeah. point in the confession. And, of course, it's important to remember that, yeah, in this time I don't think – you know, we bring a lot of theonomic baggage to this that I don't think they necessarily had because for them, you know, I mean, they're, you know, the laws in England said that you couldn't do any uh, recreation on Sunday. And, yeah. You know, the laws in... The, it's you know, inherently Christian. English common law was based on the Bible, so it wasn't, they weren't like thinking, well, all the the law of the land to reflect the biblical standard. It's like, well, it did. You mean they didn't have people mutilating their bodies and saying they're the opposite gender and stuff? No. If they did, they would have said you're insane. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I do bring that up every once in a while <laughs> is the fact that, you know, we sometimes would like for something to be in there about that, but then you realize they didn't even think about that. Yeah, like, they didn't even know, have the categories. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have the categories mm-hmm. to think about that. Like, you know, the section in marriage here where, you know, it's a, we would like it to be like, it, it, it says something to the effect of, you know, like a, a biological, you know, you know, a biological man to a, to one biological man to one biological woman who was a man and woman from birth. 
you know, and that's just they, they identifies. They would have never, they would have yeah. never even thought to, it, to it, define those categories. It that takes way. a significant darkening of the human mind uh, in order to come to the spot that we're at. Yep, I agree. So that's what happens when you reject the triune God is you're left in complete and utter idiocy, idiocy, idiocy. Good. Yeah. Anyhow, um, so the actual uses of the law. So the law can be broken broken down into three main usages. Uh, so first one would be the showing of that which is right, uh, effectively. So showing uh, the believer what God expects, what God wants from them. Uh, it is also acting as a mirror that shows us our imperfection, shows us you know our true need of Christ, and it is also. Um, designed to restrain evil to prevent us from uh, you know from violating god's law and thus uh, violating his standard amen so the lot to show you what's right versus wrong this is the i think one that does apply most clearly to all men so what's funny in our time is we have on the one hand a very nihilistic bunch of people until they're offended, right? <laughs> so, and you, you can't escape that, right? And I think that's been, you go all the way back to like the early 60s and the apologetics arguments of culture, that's always been the dagger in the side of, of that entire movement of humanism, athe- atheism, whatever you want to call it, is like, you guys are still morally indignant. Like, why? Oh, yeah. So you mm. can't, as much as you want to be like, we're free, we all came from nothing. We have no purpose. You want yeah. to live that way. But they still you, live in life more life. Yes. Yeah. And, and as much as they want to deny. They can't justify it. They can't. And that, that, that in an apologetic way, in a objective, trying to reason with the unreasonable people, hmm. it's, un, it's undeniable. That's the reason. I can't remember who said it first, but you have to s- sit in God's lap to slap him in the face. Yes. You, so, well, so Dur- Durbin says you have to steal from the worldview. Yeah, yeah so. you have to, you pretty much have to. And I mean, as far as that yeah. goes, everybody wants to be a moral relativist until you get to the Holocaust. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. that's a good that's one. Pretty much how you how you get at that point is everybody is a moral relativist until you see something that just is so yeah outrageously awful that you're like, yeah, this yeah. is a terrible thing. Well, you know, if you don't have a Christian worldview, you really don't have a standard to say that. I mean, correct. Yeah. It's just you don't like it. and yeah, I, You don't like it. I, I will say it's as much as it can be an intellectual argument, it's really not. Like the moral oh. side of things is much deeper in the human, yeah. uh, what did you say, existence even, than, than just a merely intellectual sin of like, oh, I understand these foundations mm-hmm. uh, can't support what I feel, whatever, however you want to say that. It's much deeper. It's like at the, at the very core of your of your person, you realize that this this morality the universal morality of mankind has bound you yeah and and you know romans one would say you spend your entire life mm. suppressing that and it becomes less and less of a loud voice to you so yeah. and then you spend the remainder of your life <laughs> replacing the worship of the triune god with a different the enthronement of your own passions and fleshly yeah. lust so romans that's a great that's where i would have went so romans one clearly says clearly says that they know and that it is a revelation mm. So what you don't do as a human is walk outside, see the Holocaust, and reason through it and say, oh, you know what, now I see. It's no. It's, you walk outside as if the sun is up. Mm. It reveals. Like there's no there's no classes you have to take. There's, there's no 15 years of contemplated thought. You walk out, you see, and it reveals. Mm. 
and you automatically suppress it. That's so. That's that's the point I would like to bring out of Romans one. It's everybody knows it. It's universal and it is revealed. It's not logic. It's not reason to. Yeah. So that first use, you might say, the moral use is universal. Though, like uh, like you said in the confession, it's primarily towards the Christian. Yeah. So the first four the first four points are defining what that moral law is. Yeah. Yeah. And then the abrogation of the others. And right. And understanding the, the correct division. Yeah. So the the uh, the second use is um, so was the second use the curve? It or? doesn't matter. So you can you can say it's a lot mirror and curve. So the mirror is only for the regenerate, in some sense, right? So the mirror is it's it's there for everyone, I think, to some extent. But the mirror is you look into the well. That's the revelation we were talking about. You look into the law and you see you're found wanting, mm-hmm. and and then you look at Christ and you see His fulfillment. So it it reveals to you. Two things. True nature, yeah. Your true nature and then the true nature of Christ, in some sense, true nature of God. And then without the gospel, we'd just be like, this is this is rough. Yeah. Like, I, this is where I am. So, it, But you have to see where you are. Agree. And it, it reveals where you are. Agree yeah, I only think that um, really there's two, um, two of these that I think could apply to a non-believer, which are, mm. you know, the mirror and, of course, uh, the restraint of evil. Yeah. Mm. I don't know that the approbation of that which is good that that would require the Holy Spirit operating to actually correct. Yeah, that's a good point. really happen. Yeah. So, but yeah, those two are there, um, and I think it's important. That does uh, make for a reason why we should advocate for the biblical standard being upheld in society. I think uh, yeah, our society would be better if it was. <laughs> Well, it would operate in reality. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, oper- yeah. We're we're we we've we've cut the we've cut the foundation off, and now we're just drifting out to out to sea somewhere. We we've took the foundation out from under it, but yet we want the building. So we want to have natural natural rights and protection under laws, but yet we don't want to be created in the image of God. So that's what we've done. We've we've cut the foundation out, and we're just sitting here tottering, just waiting for a collapse. As far as society goes, anyway. Mm. Amen. <clears throat> and then the uh, so the the curve you might say, right? Yeah. So, so the mirror was hey, this is God's holy standard. This is who God is. And, I, I, and now here's yeah. another thing that may not initially come into your mind, but I think a good objection that would have to be answered is how is it reflective of God? Because God is spirit. God doesn't have these human relationships to be obedient in. And and that I think that's a good question and a, and a natural question that arises from a thinking person. So um, this idea of somehow we'll just use the uh, last four, I'm sorry, the last six commandments and man's relationship to man. Horizontal. Uh, yeah. So God doesn't actually physically have that relationship to uphold even within Himself. Like even if within the Trinity, they don't um, necessarily abide by those physical restraints or standards in their operations it's actually a reflection of his character so the way i would explain it and again this may not be the perfect way to explain it I think but right. it would be um this is what god would do um it, it and what god did do in, in the person of christ in some sense but um it's what he's created you to do yes because of his character yes yeah. so god doesn't have uh, in some sense he doesn't have the opportunity to steal because he creates all things right however understanding that God's character, um, most fully displayed in Christ, Christ did not steal <laughs> right. in, in a legitimate way. Um, Christ did no 
wrong. No sin. And that's even on the picadillos of the, you know, the most nuance you could possibly strain. Mm. Um, you know, he, he did none. Yep. So that's God in human flesh, and he's the ultimate example. But even before that, before the incarnation and the full revelation of, you know, God in human flesh, that's still a standard. Like, and, and God's yeah. character is that standard. So it's it's not, it doesn't have to be in the situation, like, mm-hmm. of adultery or of theft or, or of false witness. Um, it's 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 actually deeper than that. Those are just, um, I think, ways to display that character in creation in some sense. Now, one thing I would probably maybe add is a little nuance on that um, because, you know, I think the law is a reflection of the attributes of God. Mm. I do think the attributes of God are displayed between the persons of the Trinity. Right, and, to some extent. Yeah. You know, that's bit that's how, you know, you could really say that God is fully self sufficient because he mm-hmm. doesn't need to create for Impassible. his attribu- yeah. attributes True. to be displayed because yeah. in the for Trinitarian love, God yeah. Godhead they are displayed eternally. And and insofar as something like say love, you know, mm-hmm. that is definitely a, a I mean, what's the summation of the law? You know, yeah. <laughs> love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And so. that that reality is in the Godhead before yeah, creation. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. for sure. Agreed. Yeah, so that that's a good nuance, and that's a good way to put it. Is God can't steal; He can't even tempt you to do it. So it's a law that you shouldn't do it because He can't, because mm-hmm. that's His character. Right. Yeah. Uh, one more caveat I will say about the moral law, and then feel free to go to point five if you want to or not. That's up to you. So, (laughs) one more caveat. Uh, So, the moral law is a collection of natural law given to Adam, and then a collection of positive laws. So, we use that uh, we use that category last episode of natural and positive. So, the collection of natural and positive actually makes moral. So, Adam, as we said, had the Ten Commandments written on his heart. He didn't need anybody to tell him that. He did not have the command of do not eat that fruit on his heart. That's positive to the covenant of works or the covenant of life. So God adds that to Adam and says, do not eat of that. So what Adam actually transgresses as the moral law and not technically not the natural law. He transgresses the stipulation added, as we'll see in as you see in point one. He he, he transgresses that. And he transgresses the moral law because anything that God commands is a positive command uh, unto your covenant that becomes deeply and inherently moral to do. And that's in addition to natural law. Is there some of those in the New Testament? There's baptism, Lord's Supper, uh, things such of that nature. That's the two sacraments. Sacraments. That is added there. Ordinances. <laughs> I something. think they're interchangeable. But anyway, something. So you see those two <laughs> regulations given in the New Testament is do these things. So that's an example of positive law. The, the the gathering of Sunday as well is a positive to the New Testament, one of which uh, would not have been in the past. It would have been a seventh day, seventh day. I think this is not Sabbath. this is not one you hear talked about a lot, but actually what's positive to the New Testament is the abrogation of the old. Like, Correct. It's passing away and is fulfilled. So that that's one that sticks out. Maybe not more than the ordinances slash sacraments, but yeah. but one that does stick out is you do not worship the way you used to. Yep, and that's where you get into like Galatians. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. because that would be a violation of that positive uh, directive that. Yep. You know the old lo- the old covenant is not the gateway mm-hmm. to the new. Amen. You know you don't you don't go by the old covenant to mm-hmm. get to the new covenant. Right. It, it's New Testament priority in all interpretation. Yep. Acts fifteen, man. 
as much as I do have questions about what they did positively <laughs> give the Gentiles, they did not give oh, them. Oh, that's a great question. I think this is my understanding. That idea is what of this ceremonial things are we going to give to them? They're saying right. abstain from these things. Don't go to these orgies. Just don't do that. And then yeah. we're going to be good. It was a lot simpler than Leviticus. <laughs> right. So they're saying, yeah. we can't. We didn't do these things. They're a great burden upon us, they say. That, yeah. that, that's not the moral law. Okay, neither, guys? neither we nor our fathers could yeah. keep this. Yeah. So, so Acts 15, they're not saying, hey, go murder and steal and pillage and rape. Right. Just don't go to this orgy over here. That's not what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, for they're sure. saying, out of this economy that we're in and all this ceremonial stuff, just don't do that. Which what they told them not to and do. And then positively do these other things. Yeah, what yeah. they told them not to do is easily missed, right? Agreed. It's it's really don't be an idolater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so don't don't partake in meat sacrifice to idols. Yet again, you see Paul later saying, if this is in the market, just yeah. buy it. What's it? Yeah. Yeah, so, so you see two different scenarios there. So Christians like other people. So, and I, this might be a terrible illustration, but I think it's a good one. All right. So the vegan, let's take the vegan who literally believes, that an actual vegan, Who's like any taking of animal life is equal to taking of human life? Like you don't believe that, Nathan? Do you? No, I don't. Okay, care. good. Me neither. Seventh Day Adventist might. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the vegans, they make that a, the moral issue of our time. Yeah, they see everything through that. So Christians very often do similar things without without using the whole new testament without taking into mm. any consideration nuance context yep. so you don't see that in paul you don't see that in any of the apostles what you see is actually like a, a reasoned um application of the moral law so that's not good. not not kind of a one-off mm -hmm. so i think in in the context of the meat sacrificed idols it is objectively morally incorrect to walk into the temple of diana and do that yeah and and partake in that um idolatrous ceremony mm -hmm. now the question is is it morally is incorrect it, to buy that is it, at food city is it is it yeah right. is it wrong to bum a cigarette off one of those guys correct <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so that's just a poor example <laughs> myself in the past and maybe some still in the present the struggle is um what to be morally outraged about and what not right yeah. so that's a great point we pretty much hit all the points that we're going to talk about anyway. But anyway. Not really. So what you see in antinomianism today, mm. take uh, Pentecostalism, for example. Uh-oh. So you see that, that disconnect they have from the Old Testament and their radical view of that. What's left? Dress code. Dress code. Yeah. They, they say, don't show your ankles. Don't cut your hair. That is in no way a moral command of God. Agreed. And then that becomes their thing because they're dis they're disconnected. They just add in whatever they want, and they say this is binding upon the church. Mm -hmm. And that's that's whatever legalist does. And right? to be fair, that's not all Pentecostal. Or um, no, right? But that's that, not. Or Amish people, or Anabaptists, whatever you want to say. Anybody that disconnects themselves from the morality of the Old Testament comes and says the law of Christ is different, and adds whatever positive commands they want, and says this is morally binding. Yeah, it becomes subjective. It does. And then you see the addition of whatever. Whatever there. The last thing before we get into point five, on specifically on, um, say, Peter and the vision. Uh, yeah, kill and eat. I think that's Acts 4 or 5 or somewhere. I think like it's that. 9. Okay, yeah, you're right. It is. Before okay. Cornelius. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So that one, and then Paul Paul in 1 Corinthians, and to some extent 2 Corinthians, but the meat sacrificed to idols going into the... Uh, weaker stronger brother christian liberty thing yeah 
I feel like we could all, and I hate to be this guy, but especially as Baptist, like we could do well to really take that into consideration. Not necessarily on some sort of doctrinal compromise, of course not, but, right. you know, um, what it means to be a Baptist is um, not to go to the liquor store and to eat. Yeah, like, you talking about just don't smoke and don't drink and don't cuss and yes, don't go with those. All those yeah. things. Uh-huh. That are, well, you shouldn't cuss. Or, you shouldn't. Yeah, you shouldn't. <laughs> I agree with that. But, you know, it, it, we tend to make... Yeah, so if you see somebody and they, they have a they have a moderate amount of alcohol or they smoke a cigar, you're just like, oh, that person's Correct. terribly wrong. Not spiritual. Not spiritual, yeah. right. So, yeah, so that's 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 a good application to our own tradition. You see that, you see teetotalism, in the, especially in the South, as being a big, big thing. Hmm. It still yeah. is. It's, oh, yeah, for sure. It's baked in there. Yeah. And I'm not saying there's not wisdom in that. I mean, feel your own conscience. I don't care. I'm just saying that's... If you want to elevate that to, to bind a brother's conscience. Well, to be honest, man, there's wisdom in not eating meat sacrificed idols. Agreed. I mean, yeah. So he says don't do it if it compromises your relationship. Yeah, he says, I would say the same thing. So you always, so that's the reason the weaker brother is a tyrant, because the weaker brother can't do these things. You can, but you go to him. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in that aspect, and what's baked in there is that the weaker brother is, is built up to a stronger brother. That's the goal. Yeah, so it's yeah. not as if you just continually not, lay, not lay down it, these things. Not so. that he has to eat the meat. Right. But that he could. Right. Yeah. And then he, <laughs> yeah. he comes to grow to see that, mm-hmm. the freedom in Christ and the understanding of those things. Amen. Yeah. Anything else no. on the intro? That was that was quite an intro. Yeah, I think we, touched, we pretty much talked about all the points, but that's fine. Okay. All right, so we'll go point five. Again, this is uh, chapter 19 of God's Law. Going to get through three chat, three paragraph three subpoints today. I will preface that subpoint six is massive, massive. So five and seven are very straightforward. I enjoy them. Uh, six is challenging to me. Not not that I disagree with it. It's just a lot to work through. Yeah. So paragraph five, the moral law does forever bind all, as well as justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but must strengthen this obligation. Yeah. So, what scriptures you got? Uh, the one that I would go to more than any other one is actually what they cite for the last portion. This idea that Christ doesn't take this away, but He strengthens it. James. Um, so they use James. Yeah, oh yeah, that's the one to go to. We'll come back to James. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so first they use Matthew 5. Now here's, I'm not going to say I take issue with this citation. Oh. Because that would not be, that would not be wise of me. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'm sure that I'm not as wise as these men. So they use Matthew 5, uh, let's see, 17 and following. And this is that classic abrogation passage. So, Matthew 5, 17, this is in the ESV. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so fulfill there is not abolish. So if you read that, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to abolish the law. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work very well. I agree. So that so, that so, fulfillment is not uh, is not abrogation, but strengthening, but establishing, but but actually doing the things required. Right. 
So that's the reason they cite that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I say I take issue, I, I don't take issue. I think what they mean I don't take issue with. I think the way it's fulfilled is that we don't accomplish that. Not, right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's easily missed. So the last part of that, Matthew 5, is unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? You'll never yeah. see the kingdom. So at the two ends, and again, this could take forever. I'm going to summarize it. The two ends of the extreme in that understanding of what Christ is getting across, which does span across way more teaching than just Matthew 5. But the one end is the extreme dispensationalist discontinuity end. Okay. Right. Which basically says, yes, um, there's a new set of commands in the New Testament. It's just love and all that that we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're not, we're not on that end. The, I think that that's a bad end to be on. The other end that's, I think, worse to be on is the, is the Pharisaical end, the Judaizing end. Yeah. Um, which, which says, yeah, I mean, grace is great. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, God justifies the just. So, yeah. which is, you know, a lot of systems get into legalism. So I think what, uh, what, what, what Jesus is teaching there is, is summed up well in their next citation, which is Romans 3.31. Um, and it says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That mm -hmm. is what I would use. I would use both. Yeah. Like well, I think do. they go together. I mean, I think, oh, yeah, they I think if you look at 5, you know, 5.17 through 19, I mean, I think it kind of explains... Okay, so how does how is the law fulfilled? Well, well, in this situation, Paul gives us the answer. Do we then make the void the law through faith? No, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Amen. Yeah, so it's true. really like faith in this situation is the key that unlocks the door that we see in Matthew five seventeen through nineteen. Yeah. yeah. So, so amen. You're you're well getting at point six there. So what we see is not a change of the law, but a change of relationship to the law. So the law, yes, yes. the law stays the same, right? It, the moral law doth forever bind all, as well as justified persons as others. Now, if there's one statement in this whole confession that I would love to put a candle in the window shouting from the rooftops until I die, it's point five right here. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well as the justified. Okay? I think I would lean more towards something on justification. Yeah, well, that's probably. <laughs> but even still, I like, you know, heavy on the doth. Doth. It doth. So not only does the fulfilling of the law and the change of relationship to it much strengthen the need for it. So I yeah. think, I agree, and I think... Their use of James two. Oh is, yeah, that's that's yeah. The, that's the feather in the cap there, my friend. Yeah, and this is, uh, I think Romans three and Romans six would be if somebody just said, "Prove yourself," you know, <laughs> it would be those two places. <laughs> Romans yeah. seven too, but oh for sure. So, yeah. so James two is easily my goodness. This is the free will Baptist bread and butter, son. <laughs> this is where they go to say. All that grace stuff and all that uh, perseverance of the saint, all that's abrogated by James 2, and I say no, right? No, no, no. But on the backside of antinomianism, which I come out of, okay, mm -hmm. James 2 is also not understood clearly in, in any sense. All right, so what is James 2 teaching? They cite James 2, 8 to 12, roughly. So we'll just read it in its entirety. Um, again, in the ESV, James 2, 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, 
you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Four, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So, I think that, and I don't know how it's translated in other translations right off the top of my head, but that idea of the law being a law of liberty is that change mm-hmm. of relation, right? It's it's no longer the Roman 7 taskmaster of death, <laughs> mm. but... That's because it's not fulfilled. It's not done. You haven't done it. Correct. Yeah. Well, the paradigm shift is one from from slavish obedience to love. Yeah. That's yeah. really what we're looking yeah. at in that situation. Okay. And, I mean, it's also good here because, you know, in summation, we can sum up the law of God and say that it's really pretty much summed by two points, which is, of course, what Jesus says to the lawyer, right? Yeah. Love mm-hmm. the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as, as thyself. Yeah. Um, and so... But, you know, it's interesting because when you go into that, really, if, if you get right down to it, especially Paul and James, you know, they sort of, you can see they sort of imagine a hypothetical person who looks at that and goes, well, who is my neighbor? Or mm-hmm. how do I love my neighbor? And or then, how and, many do I have to keep in James' yeah, case? Yeah. 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 And, or whatever the case may be. And he just goes straight back to the Ten Commandments in yeah. that. He just basically says, well, yeah. this, is, this is what you do to actually demonstrate that you love that you love your that you love your um, you love your neighbor. Same thing with Paul. Paul pretty much just goes down the list of the you know of the uh, Ten Commandments and, mm-hmm. and says this is all summed up by mm-hmm. you know love thy neighbor as thyself. Oh yeah, yeah, amen there. Mm-hmm. So you see the the natural law uh, summarized in the ten, then you see the ten broken down into the two. Uh, love neighbor, love God, love people, <clears throat> so, love your neighbor. Yeah, so that you that's on a lot of billboards, by the way. It is love God, love people. V- yeah, and then I'm like, okay, well, there's applications of that in the scripture. Well, they don't really want to get in the yeah, they don't want to get they want to get an application. I mean, th- they just want the statement. Right? They they well, the problem there is then you make then you make that just a nebulous thing. Yep. like love God, love people. That's and, the reason you need the whole Old Testament. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's they're the people that Paul and James are writing to, <laughs> really, in a sense, because yeah. they're just like, man, I just believe in love God and love people, and then you go, okay, well, how do you love God? Who's God and who's people? Right. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you love God? How do you love people? You know, how are how are these things accomplished? And the answer is the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so point five, they're going to say, and that not only in regard of matter contained in it. So the, so the moral law binds everyone, that not only in the regard of the matter contained in it, but also in the respect of the authority of God, of the Creator. I think, mm. th- I think they say that to mean the equity, as we were talking about. I also think... So the principles behind the law. I also think, and this is what's really lost as we've talked about the craziness and the basically the ship sailing into destruction of our culture. (laughs) What's lost is the transcendent um, root. Mm -hmm. Where does this act? Endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Yeah. That thing is is what they're pointing to as well. Is that this law isn't just like, oh, we all agree. We came together as a culture and said we shouldn't eat each other. Right? No. I don't. Yeah. It's 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 rooted in this transcendent Creator who who has this who actually possesses authority to bind men. Yeah. It's not based in consensus. It's based Correct. in, in yeah, objective, objective truth. reality. Yeah. So the, I don't even know how you have a criminal justice system without transcendent laws. You don't. You don't. What you? Yeah. So that's why in our criminal justice system you see the remnants of you know put your hand on the Bible and swear an oath to mm-hmm. God. Um, 
but all that's gone. Well, effectively, it is just at that point. It's just pure coercion. Like I, I have a gun, so therefore you have what to do I what I say. Yeah. yeah, I mean that that's really what it if, comes down to. That, that, yeah, that's why you know I really object to the idea of removing the Ten Commandments from from the courthouse because mm-hmm. yeah. it it's a bad idea. It really just goes down to. You know that I love you the way I want to. Right. Well, I'll I'll love you by putting a bullet through your head. You know, people are like, you know, well, we want to put this that uh, that that's a, you know, like the the whole Satan statue <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It's like, look, Satan's Satan has has nothing to do with this. <laughs> and really, honestly, in some yeah. sense, it, it 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 goes beyond that. It's just down to the real fact that Western culture was established on an idea that there was an objective standard of law mm-hmm. that bound all men yeah and as is. such it is the standard by which we are to be judged yeah. eternally it is also the standard by which we are to be judged temporally yeah and as such that's what the ten commandments at the courthouse thus indicate mm-hmm. is that there is this objective standard that um, when you look at the court it's not it's not a tyrannical rule of men although it um, unfortunately in a lot of cases now it, be. it's yeah. it's become that uh-huh. but yeah. the idea was that it was actually this is just a temporal representation of a transcendent reality that God rules over men and executes his law yeah amen amen, amen there amen. So if you read hang on i got one thing okay <laughs> so we live in the i don't know if you guys know this but uh, the political <laughs> Nathan times probably does. the political times we find ourselves are uh, very um, polarizing, right? So yeah. there, there is a pretty popular movement on the uh, conservative side of things to say we're a nation of laws and to root basically everything in natural theology in some extent to not even to not even necessarily reference a, a creator at all to just be like reference natural law basically to some extent, yeah. but not get into any type of explanation of where that comes from. In L two K, something like that. <laughs> So, I think our assertion, and in my opinion here, the confession's assertion is um, there is such a thing as natural law and, and mm-hmm. uh, kind of... Uh, it is transcendent. It is binding upon all. Yeah. Without the transcendent mm-hmm. aspect of that, it doesn't do anything. Yeah, so we interpret the natural law through the lenses of Scripture. That's how you yeah. properly do that. But anyway, so, so I will... The last thing politically, and then I I want to end it up. So, if you read any of the amendments of the Constitution, you'll read... The United States government no longer denies the right. So uh, baked into that is the government can't give you rights. It can only deny you those rights. And then it has to amend that and change it to say you have this right by nature. And then we have done away with that, and now we're changing that. So now people think that the government actually grants you rights. Right. So that's the reason yeah. you see the rise of identity politics. They say that all my identity is wrapped up on what I believe about the government because that is the God. Because that is my highest standard of who actually gives me rights. So my identity is wrapped up in my position upon that. That's where that stems from. Yeah. And and that's not healthy or good because your identity has to be in, in God, right? Yeah. As him giving that transcendent moral law, doth binding on. <laughs> yeah. So they also cite Romans thirteen, eight to ten. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Right, he goes on. Um, the commandments: you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and all that. Any other commandment is wrapped up in this: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, in some sense, as much as it's abused, there is truth in like, yeah, what's changed in in the New Testament is love. Now, 
What's meant by people is we no longer have any standard really to go by, and what they turn that into is an emotional, experiential, like um, Hillsong type thing. Okay? Which is not New Testament love. I mean, right. love yeah. is not some ooey-gooey feeling of you know, affirmation. affirmation or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. Um, love is, in some sense, rooted in commandment. It's yep. it's rooted in responsibility, and it's rooted in um, in um, law keeping. In law keeping, yep. in in a sense, um, in the fact that uh, you you know how you how you obey these things truly ref- is a reflection of what you really um, of, of what you really care about, of what you really love. Yeah, mm-hmm. agreed. I mean, and the uh, the idea of of love like you said, seems to be counterintuitive, similarly to the way that Paul opposes the spirit in the flesh or the legal code in the spirit. Um, yeah. So I think the law, he means there's not the moral law, but the Old Testament understanding. So the old, the whole Old Testament system. Yeah, and I think in some sense he also includes yeah. the moral because when Jesus says he fulfills it, I really think he means... Yeah, all of it, right. And And... I'm just saying the law has a priesthood in Hebrews, for the priesthood according to the law. So right. just because you read law in the New Testament doesn't mean the moral Ten Commandments all the time. It means the Old Testament economy and system. So it just yeah. depends on the context in which it's used. That's the, that's the point I was going to bring out there. But go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. So the love idea, if you think, how does how could you square this idea of just saying we're not saved by law? But we're saved to law. How does that make sense? So you take a, uh, I don't know, you take a child, like my my children, when I tell them things, and they like blatantly look in me, and this happens, believe it or not, they bl- they blatantly look in, into my eyes and willfully disobey and like enjoy it. That's <laughs> that's not love, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's really not the law as the means it's the law as the as the evidence and, yeah. and and so love like my wife and me might be a better example um when i when i say hey do this for me or this is what i think you should be done in this situation um when she does do that even though maybe she doesn't she doesn't really want to i see the love she has for me right in her obedience to what i ask yeah and uh, similarly, the same thing with God. It's it's um, it's not the means through which you have a relationship, but it's the means through which um, evidence is given of your connection in some sense. And like, like we yeah. said, a thousand different ways. Right? Yeah, that's what it means in point six. Yeah. Well, I think it also goes back to uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which I think gives <clears throat> us another idea behind that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I mean, you could almost really. What do you think that prepare beforehand means? Do you think that that's in the Old Testament, as in like He's defined these things? No, no, I think more in terms of like God's decree. Is yeah, what I is what yeah. I oh, typically okay. think in that okay. that context. But I think maybe we include both of those things. Then. No, eh. I think it's a decree. Okay, I, I would think I would think more decree is okay. what I would kind right. of think of. But okay. I mean, good enough. The point is, we are His workmanship, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I I'll put the brakes on that one, Nathan. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forgive you. Uh, okay, appreciate that. <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, you could really just substitute there. You know, mm. keeping the law. I yeah, mean, yeah, because I how else? I mean, good works is not, 
you know, arbitrary. Arbitrary. Yeah. It's not yeah. just, uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's not just helping an old lady across the street, although that could be, you know, that could be Love part of Love your neighbor. That yeah. could be part of it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really more rooted in the idea of, yeah. of the law of God. That's a great point. I agreed. So point five is going to say that law, that moral law is binding, and then your relationship uh, as a regenerate person much strengthens your obligation to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, last thing, I think, unless – the no. last thing I'll say on point five. No. Oh, yeah, point – yeah, okay. This idea of strengthening this obligation is massive, okay? So the legalistic side of things would say this increases this obligation, okay? Strengthening here, I think, is the right way to say this. So if you say um, Christ increases your obligation to obey, what that that's actually, in my opinion, a worse condition than less responsibility. Right. <laughs> uh, this idea of having a strengthened obligation is now you have the ability, the will, the new nature, mm-hmm. right? The whole package of regeneration to actually do good work. To actually do it, yeah. and not only to not not only to do it with your head down and struggling, but to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's that's the difference between strengthen and say increase. That's great. Yeah, if we love him, we keep his commandments, and his commandments are, are not burdensome. burdensome. As the Amen evidence there. of our love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. They're not burdensome because he gives you the spirit yeah. and then gives you the ability to do these things. Right. Not to be over. It's effectual. Not it to, actually does something. Yeah. yeah. Not to be over dramatic, but th- this point really was like a big part of my coming out of a lot of errors. Yeah. Oh, to, yeah. To see this connection to law. And to see what Christ clearly teaches, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, yeah, it makes uh, it makes the picture much more uh, rounded. Yeah, it makes God a lot more real to me when I understand it more fully and put these things together. It makes it fair and balanced. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, sure. fair and balanced, like Fox News. Yes, like Fox News, <laughs> totally fair and balanced. <laughs> All right, paragraph six. Yeah, we need to move on from that Th- one. This is a big feller. Uh, paragraph six. Although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby. They may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. Uh, it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what aff- uh, afflictions affl- yeah, affliction. afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unallied rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation or approval of obedience and what blessings they may may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages to the one and deters from the other, is no evidence of his being under law and not under grace. So a lot to unpack here. So points. I'm going to let you... Let yeah. you start that. So point six is is really just confessing what Nathan brought out earlier in, in just the more detailed way. So it's going to say uh, that this law, uh, informing them of the will of God, so that's the light. Uh, we saw the use there. It's informing them of their duty and the will of God. 
Uh, it's also uh, as a restraint for the regenerate, so that's the curve. And then uh, you're also going to see that it shows you your sinful pollution, so that's the mirror. So we're not just making that stuff up, you know. And I think that's actually, that might be actually the Lutheran way of putting it. I don't, I'm not sure. But anyway, so you see both of, all three of these realities in I think six. it's I think it's similar to what, I think the Heidelberg Catechism is yeah. something very similar. It does, but I mean, yeah. You know, that's I, I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize that necessarily as Lutheran. <laughs> yeah, I'm but, saying the actual word curve. I think is the Lutheran tradition use of it. That could be. That could that, be. I, for some reason, I always remembered the Lutheran use of it. So light mirror and curve. I don't think the Reformed used curve, but as far as the majority word, I mean, it's the same concept. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. still the same idea. Anyway, but anyway, so you see both of those things here. So we see what to expect out of our obedience uh, we see how to do these things so that's the application of love god and, and love people right there and, and and six is six and seven is mainly talking about the use to the regenerate so it's talking about the soteriological use of the law yeah, yeah i mean that's basically just talking about particularly if we're talking about six yeah it's more a restatement of what we've right. already talked about to some extent correct we've already i mean we we've, we've pretty well i think covered that to a great degree <laughs> yeah. here at this point but yeah. i mean i mean we could maybe at this point take a moment to talk about uh i don't know the the whether or not how these sort of things apply to non-believers oh okay well yeah that's might be something we could uh amen touch so, on. so uh before before we do that let's say the main point i want you to get out of six is that you're not under the law as a covenant of works so we said that in regeneration and the fact that Christ fulfills these things, that means your relationship has changed to the law. So you are not under the law, but it has been fulfilled for you, and now you are over the law, as in you now have ability and power to keep the law. And it is that great curve, mirror, and light to you. So that's what it means when, when it says fulfilled. That means the relationship that you have, and you're no longer under its condemnation, but its command. And that's what they're saying in, in the... Yeah, and I mean, that, that last section there, I think we talked about that earlier, yes. which was that, um, you know, basically what it's saying there is, you know, just because you can see that there are different uses of the law in the believer's life mm -hmm. does not then mean that you are under the law. And that, that's one of the key right. things they wanted to try to distinguish there. Just because mm -hmm. the law is, is still important to yes. the Christian does not mean that we are under the under law. That. The yeah. scriptures are very clear that we are not. So... So what it means as a covenant of works, that means that you can do this and live. Hmm. So what it what it what it doesn't mean to be over the law now or to be on the command of the law is not that you can keep this for your salvation, nor does it add to your righteousness. That's the that's the reason they're going to say is it no evidence of his being under law and not under grace. So we're saying just because you keep the law does not mean you keep it for justification. Just because you keep the law does not mean you do that apart from grace, but you, you do it because of grace and because of the change in relationship to it. So that covenant of works, that's what it means. So it's unlawful use of the law to say that I take the mirror, right, that shows me my pollution and then try to clean my face with it. It doesn't work that way. The, the unlawful use of the law is one of regenerative use, so one that, that says I relate to God through this standard in my law-keeping. That's an unlawful use of it. And that's a pharisaical use of it and legalist use of it. And that is not at all what they're saying in this chapter. Right. And the uh, the scriptures they use are just brilliant here. Basically, Romans 3, Romans 6, and Romans 7, and Romans 8 and Romans 10. <laughs> I mean, basically the book of Romans. And, and to be honest, man, 
as so they got a little first Peter in there too. They got a, <laughs> got a first Peter there at the Spring end. Sprinkle a little topping on there. <laughs> just yeah. just to balance it out. <laughs> but but uh, so I can remember preaching through Romans as a pretty much an antinomian. And by the way, antinomian means no law. No or, law, yeah. Or basically the complete saying, uh, when Christ says he fulfills the law, it means it's completely done away with. We unhitch from it. There's no need to reference it. It does not need to be on the courthouse. Yeah. It does not need to be on your wall. Right. It's it's basically of no continuing it's, it's, use. It's rejection of point five. To say you have yeah. no obligation now to obey the moral law of God. Correct. Yeah. And, which, which is born from the whole... You say a prayer, you go to heaven thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, versus like a true biblical understanding of faith and union with God. And, uh-huh. and you know. Yeah. So anyway, preaching through Romans, I came across Romans 3, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 10. <laughs> and, and They're in there. Um, this idea, I really struggled. And I immediately skipped them. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. But I really struggled to understand what was intended by... You know, on the contrary, we uphold the law in Romans 3, and then in Romans 6, you know, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. I understood that part. What I didn't understand was, let sin uh, not therefore rend your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Romans six twelve. do not present your members as uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members as to God as instruments for righteousness. So this balance, I think... Um, which we've already, you know, we're at a pretty good long point in the confession where we went through justification, sanctification, all those yeah. things. But uh, the 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 use of the law in sanctification is massive. Oh, yeah. So as far as the relation to unbelievers, uh, the first point in point six is not going to be true for them. So he says, although true believers do not uh, be not under the law as a covenant of works. So if you're an unbeliever in Christ, you are under the law as a covenant of works. So there is, in fact, two ways of justification uh, in the New Testament. It's either the, it's either by by grace through faith, the acceptance of Christ's finished work, and you're grafting into Him, or it's by perfect obedience to the law. Um, so I, I grant the premise: if you can do it, you're justified. The problem is you can't. So uh, apart from Christ, you relate to God through your works. You relate to God as your moral failings and as His enemy because you're under that covenant of works to say that this righteousness must be fulfilled, and it must be fulfilled by you. Uh, you're not in Christ, and that's the difference between the two. And, of course, remembering that James said that, like, if you fail at any point, at any time, yeah. you, you've you not met the standard. Yeah, you, you can't say, well, God, I didn't covet, but uh, I may have lied a few times. But, you know. <laughs> We're not grading on the curve here. <laughs> We're not. And James says you're guilty of all of it. Which oh, is, for sure. Yeah. Which is... Um, Terrifying. I, mean, yeah. I think the full the full witness of Scripture is that no one apart from Christ has ever done anything actually morally good. Uh, so there's not. A, I grant. I grant the premise. If there, I've, I've said this before, if there's a scale and that your good works outweigh your bad works, you'll go to heaven. I grant the scale. I really do. Uh, the problem is that scale is that one's way up in the air and the other one's at absolutely zero. So you've never yeah. done anything good ever, and you've only sinned continually. Yeah. Well, I think there's there's a scenario where you might be able to say that someone might commit commit an act every once in a while <laughs> at some point in yeah. their life that is truly morally good. Right. 
Um, but that doesn't counterbalance yes. everything else. And on top of that, yeah, uh, even beyond that, you can't really rule out. To, you know, you don't know the person's heart and their motivation. R- right. So even so if they do the yeah. a good moral act, then it's it could not. also be so. Yeah, the reformers had a category of that civic good. They've done a civically good thing. They have not done a morally or godly good thing. That's what I was going to say. Luther always yeah. said, "My there's so much sin intermixed with my good." Yeah, that I need to be redeemed of my good. For sure. And, and uh, you know, for all his faults, which are numerous, Luther really understood that. Yeah, he did. And you know, he didn't apply it the best sometimes. And that, but, but gosh, that's such a good point. He too. really understood that on my best day, as a regenerate person, the good I do is so close. It's so close mm-hmm. to to evil. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, that, that, I know we've talked about glorification yeah. already, but we really look forward to that. Like yeah, amen there. The fact that one day, by grace, there will be no more intermixing. Now, the last—I th- will say one thing about. That. Oh yeah, go ahead. Okay, so not uh, the last thing, but go ahead. So that's the reason you see is it's not under a covenant of works, but one of grace. So it doesn't—it doesn't mean you're uh, you're actually efficaciously doing these things apart from grace. So Luther there, he would he would recognize clearly that any good work that I've actually done in the spirit is still tainted with enough of my sin that it's sinful but god accepts it because of who he is and by grace and by grace he accepts that good work as actually efficacious as actually being a good thing in christ which merits things and to back up Not what salvation. luther yeah. was saying with uh, some scripture to kind of go along <laughs> with that'd be a good idea yeah isaiah 64 6 says but we are all like an unclean thing mm-hmm. and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags amen so i mean effectively you know what the scripture says on on this point is even our righteousness even our righteousness mm-hmm. is is unclean and so. that that reality re- remains as a regenerate person it's only that god now accepts it because of the work of christ as being good and that's not good for justification but other things through on the merit of, of christ's righteousness mm, correct you know, we, we mm-hmm. you know we have we have it's like we have this uh yeah. this this christ's righteousness wrapped around us now yeah. <laughs> you know we're we're it, what, what was the uh what was the luther uh analogy of like the dung piles covered yeah. in snow yeah but uh he should have yeah. been a poet man yeah he his um his uh his his imagery is very scatological, not eschatological, but <laughs> eschatological. but scatological. I mean, he yeah, that's pretty good. To be it. fair, man, I mean, at that time there was poo everywhere. <laughs> that's true. It was I mean, in the streets. It was <laughs> <laughs> probably <laughs> in the rooms, in the bed, everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you go, they were sleeping with the pigs in winter. I mean, I'm sure it was pretty nasty, you know. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I would say he, uh, he, he was said to come to his prodigal revelation while sitting on the toilet. So. Yeah. Now, that could be that, that could be physical think, or that could be mental. Now, I don't know. Now, but, I would say this about that, and I know that's something <laughs> that gets brought up, but I think that really only shows up in, like, the late 19th century. And I think a lot of that comes from, like, mod, like almost Freudian now listen, type. I read a book, and that's what it said. So. No, it's, it's Eric Mata- <laughs> it was Eric Metaxas and his yeah, biography. Luther, yeah, that's where yeah. I got it from. Did Metaxas, what was Metaxas' source on that? He did, I don't think he's, he probably quoted it, but I don't remember. So, I think he added the caveat that this could not be so, basically, because of the later date. I tend to think it's not yeah. so. I, yeah. And I think... Um, Really, it it primarily, at least in my in my research, shows up primarily with uh, later writings, nineteenth yeah. okay. twentieth century writings, uh, and 
a lot of them based on psychology, and so you get this almost psychologized view of Luther. Um, mm, which that, is massive. Okay, I'm going to go with you then, Nathan. I'll rescind my statement. Luther was not sitting on the toilet when he came to this. I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't. It's a beautiful <laughs> story. <laughs> it, so, so it's a beautiful story, though. It is, yeah. So the story goes that Luther was on the Kloaka, which is, mm. I think, the German for toilet, maybe. Uh, the, whatever they <laughs> And he had this revelation of, like, mm. my righteousness is as filthy rags, like, legitimately. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was it was kind of his, in some sense, conversion. That's the story. Basically, um, it was like, my my, my righteousness <laughs> is like an outhouse, yeah, like, yeah. like yeah. what I'm in right now. Yeah, yeah. which uh, that would be pretty intense. Which is pretty tame for the volcanic monk himself, <laughs> for little brother Martin. So Yeah, some of his things I, I read, I'm just like, <laughs> dude. Yeah, there's no Good there's Lord. no language too harsh to vilify the devil with, he said. So, <laughs> so basically yeah. he was like, I will cuss the devil. So out. he was the original Doug Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, That's a joke. We, so need, we need to move on. The last the last scripture, I think, maybe to reference Romans when I say Romans ten, they use ten four, which is massive. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if we give Paul the benefit of the doubt, which is always a good idea, seeing as how he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> he's not contradicting himself in Romans. Um, that's a very popular view, basically. He's not saying we're not under law, but we are. He's also not saying we're not justified um, by works, but we are. He's not doing that, nor is James. Mm-hmm. What he is doing, though, is, the change of relationship. He is yeah. highlighting what happens to a regenerate person in their relationship to the law when, when they are regenerate. Yeah. Um, which is actually not that complex. Like no, no, it's pretty true. So Christians over the centuries, Protestant reformers, Puritans, and all the way to us, an unbroken line of apostolic succession. <laughs> <laughs> no. 2,000 years of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Trail of blood. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> but uh, just kidding on that, by the way. But... Um, that, no, that's terrible. They're the, not. No. They're not double. Spe- <laughs> that's the, terrible. They're not double that's, speaking to you. They're not. The we're not. Position. We're not double speaking. We're not saying you're under the law, but you're not. Yeah. What we're saying is you're not at all under the law, and that the As law a covenant of works at all, mm-hmm. and that the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to bring you fully to um, the command of the law. Uh, well, fully to heaven. Okay. Um, and and anything you do in a positive way is given glory to the Spirit and Philippians 2, Philippians 3, working that in you. You work it out because it's worked in. Um, Any positive thing you do for Christ is because he did it in you first. He gets all the credit, right? We don't nullify that. The the challenge, so in the audience, the challenge in which I would like to bring out to you in point six is to not look at the Old Testament as a bifurcated uh, uh, museum of religion to say, oh, look at how look at these dinosaurs back here and the way they used to do it. I think you should take the law, the Torah, and actually glean from it practice. So rightly divide it, rightly understand, and then do the application out of obedience to Christ. Okay, That's what I want you to see in point six here. That does all those things when we actually study and rightly understand the law of God it shows us, it shows us our true selves. It shows us the works we are to do, and it, it restrains evil from us. Because without that law, we would not know that it was sinful, right? We would not know the application of those things. At I mean, least not fully. That so. was the Pauline 
example, <laughs> right? right? I mean, that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 10, is he takes uh, the Levitical law and applies it and, yeah, and right. draws a principle from that. Correct, yeah. So, you know, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That doesn't, you know, you... Not for ox that he was yeah, concerned. Yeah, yeah it's, it's one of those things where you're like, well, okay, what do I do with this? I'm not a farmer, so what do I do with... Uh, <laughs> if you are a farmer, you know... If you are a farmer, put these on your track. <laughs> let, let that baby. Come. Now I do know there is a there is a gentleman at our at our church who says that you know he grew up I think on a farm in Indiana and that's what his his dad would tell him was like we're not going to put muzzles on these on these horses <laughs> they're going to they're going to eat the grain yeah, we're not going to muzzle the ox yeah. that treads out the grain yeah. so yeah. I think that's know. still binding upon that in some way yeah but. But yeah, so um, as far as that goes, uh, you know, if you're not a farmer, so what do, what do you do with that? Yeah. That's that's really what the, I think the point we're trying to glean there. Oh yeah, yeah, man. Get what you, you see what I did there. Glean. I did. Mm-hmm. You're good there. Yeah. No pun. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. No pun. So, uh, like you brought up last time, this is a good one I think too. Similar to this application, is the uh, glening of the edges of the field. Yeah. So you take the Book of Ruth, which really highlights that. And what it was really for was, you know, people that don't have, you can come and you can not get for free, not just set and receive, but work and get. Supply the poor with a means of sustenance. Yeah. So, in some sense. So, um, Which really, I think that has broad application. If we're talking about our culture, our, our culture could really take a moment and, and ask ourselves, are we really taking care of our poor yeah. properly with things like welfare yeah. and things like that. Are, is that really the most productive thing is to basically have it to where, yeah. you know, you just receive a <laughs> a, a check or receive mm-hmm. uh, food stamps or whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, because, yes, there was the gleanings principle, which said that, you know, you would, you would not glean your field, the edges of your field, so that the poor could come and gather. But yep. the poor had to go and gather. <laughs> so... Yeah. I mean, you know, unless someone is like truly incapacitated from doing something like that, yeah. I mean, I think generally the principle applies that, you know, you should probably, there there should be at least a modicum of effort that is involved mm-hmm. in whatever yeah. benevolence you have in that regard. That's a great read. Great point. So you're going to see Paul also say, if you don't work, you don't eat. It, that's a New Testament application direct. So he said, if you don't work, you don't eat. So what do you mean by that when, when, the, when the Old Testament says poor? It actually means poor. It doesn't mean apathetic or lazy. Yeah. It doesn't mean people that, that want to mooch off your field and then not do anything and lay under the shade tree and get their belly rubbed. Okay. That, that means these people are actually poor and actually have circumstances that have put them there. Uh, for some reason, and the, another thing is is the is the selling of the slavery into that system, or indentured servitude is a better way to put it. The indentured servitude you can do and say, "Hey, I'm going to sell myself to you. You feed me and clothe me, and I'll work for you." Which is it, it's employment. It's just under a different society. So yeah, that's a great point. And then you, you can't just read something and then not make the application and just say, "Oh, well, that means we have to do X, Y, and Z in this application." You say, "Well, the poor people there is actually people that are actually striving." to do these things and are failing for some reason. And then you're actually helping those people out that are trying to do these things, not somebody that's laying out with their hand open, just saying, th- come feed me. I think the biblical principle is that of a hand up, not a hand out. Yeah. Great I mean, point. That, that's a, you know, to allow people to help people, but to help people to be, to be better mm-hmm. themselves, not so they can languish there yeah. in that same condition, because that's Great really point. all, you know, generally I would say our, 
our system, all it does is it fosters people to stay mm-hmm. in the same place. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's what it's meant to do, in my opinion. In, in many cases, mm-hmm. generationally. I, I know it's generationally of, meant to addict you to the teat of the government. Well, I know, I know, yeah. you know, I know people who literally, um, I mean, good Lord, some people in my own family who are, oh, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. we're talking about generational, like, you know, two or three generations, now probably four generations of people all living yeah. off of the government welfare I, system. I've seen people try to make the application of this is that you have to give the homeless man on the corner a dollar. Uh, that's just that's just not the case, by and large. So the homeless man on the corner of a dollar is probably a drug addict, and he's probably going to take that and, and buy drugs with it. So he doesn't need money. That's not going to help him. The better option, and that the application I would have of that is, you know, if someone asks you for for money to go you know for i need this or that well give them the thing they need yeah you know, that's a great it's generally what i've always i buy you a sandwich right? advocated mm-hmm. for you know I i'm mean, not saying you shouldn't give them money i'm just saying you're not bound by the law of god to do that well the way i've always took it is you know i've always found it you know i don't want to aid and abet a sinful sinful habit like mm-hmm. drug addiction so i mean right. if you know in, in some ways i could almost make the argument that just giving someone that probably has a drug problem money is, is actually harmful to them it's not helpful to them so you know that's, right. that's where i would draw yeah you're person. just yeah yeah what they need is not money they need help quitting drugs <laughs> and in the meantime you know uh, you know yeah maybe sure i mean that, that food is a, no, I for mean, sure yeah. food, food's important and and you know and you know I've, I've actually you know i know in the past i've had situations where someone's asked you know can i can i can i get somebody i need a place to stay tonight and i was like well I, I can't necessarily do that, but if you've got a place you want to go to, I will. I will put you in a hotel room. Yeah, I've had I've had at least somebody take me up on that. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I mean, that's. Uh, but I mean, you know, that's an extreme example. But right, yeah. but still, the whole idea is just you know, give them give them a quantifiable thing that they yeah. need. Don't give them just a uh, right. something that's going to be used on on evil yeah. in, in essence. Agreed. So that that's where I take that. You know and. That's that. That's uh, probably a. I don't know if that's a directly from the gleanings principle, but I think it does kind of. Um, oh, it's it, necessarily it kind of. In there, yeah. It kind of is contained in that. Yeah. It is, and and this is a great example of actually doing general equity theonomy. Oh yeah. Like, I think that I think that's what we need to do as a culture, as a society. Like, how do we rightly divide the objective, moral application? So what we don't da- what what we don't do what we can't do as Christians is say. Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Uh, That's yeah. what James speaks against. Right. Yeah. So James actually states, and I'm pretty sure it's James. If not, it's in there, right somewhere. Um, give to the one who asked to you without measure. Like almost, and people have used that to do the unquestioning, dude needs 20, I give him a 20 thing, which I agree with your uh, statements is like, that's not wise. Because most likely, and I've seen it both ways, so I've done both things of what, what you're talking about. So I've took the dude, got him some food, took his family to places, done that, paid his bill, whatever you say. And then I've also just give cash. Yeah. And every time I give cash, I have that little lingering thing in the back of my mind thinking, yeah, probably just killed this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's hard yeah. because, you know, I mean, I get that it, it's actually it's actually harder and more inconvenient to do the other option. Like For sure. It, mm-hmm. The other involves, well, I have to actually go do this, that, and the other thing. I have to... You know, I'll, I'll have to go go with this person. I may have to give them a ride. I'll have to take them somewhere. I'll have to get them these things, and I'll have to do this and that. And that's that. That's tough. It is. It is. Um, I know it's a big ask, 
but you know i would just say that in in that scenario you have to really ask what is truly loving this person is it is it and I would argue that just giving people what they want is not actually loving. Our society thinks that it is. Just give people, you know, what they think, what they feel their needs are, and, and that's a loving thing to do. Yeah. I don't think that is. I think you should give them, you should exercise biblical wisdom and discernment and give them what is truly needful and truly beneficial for them and not something that's going to harm them. Yeah. Agreed. So I know you three men. If one of you three men fell on hard times and come and asked me for 100 bucks, I would not have any. Um, There's only two of us. It's true. <laughs> Sorry. My bad. It's early. Anyway. <laughs> um, well, there are three men here, but that would include you. <laughs> it would well. include you. I know was that I, a question to I, yourself? I know myself as well. <laughs> so so it, it's really a question of, yeah, wisdom at the end of the day with that. Mm-hmm. I think you could practice the glinting principle by just saying, here's money. But right. you could also violate it in some sense and basically kill the poor. Yep. Agreed. And, it's it's hard to discern sometimes, you know. So the character of an actual person is is massive. So if you know the person and they truly are just on hard times, like it's not a problem. The problem is again, yeah. Yep. And sense. expanding on this a little bit, I'll also add, you know, generally speaking, if it's something like if they're asking for small amounts or if it's someone I've not encountered before, generally speaking, I don't really have a problem doing that. Yeah. Right. It's really more when you have like a repeat, which I mean, I've I've had. I'll just use the phrase repeat customers, <laughs> you know, the people that will, will come over and over again. The church has had those. I mean, we've had that situation and, you know, you know, here at this church, we have some pretty, we, we have a pretty good set of principles set up for that. We've really not had to use them in more, which is odd because really post pandemic, we've really not had that, that before hmm. we had a lot of people that would come around asking for Money, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we really don't see that that much anymore. But at the time, we had it sort of set up where, you know. They all went to California. Well, we would have, we, we, we set up principles that, you know, we would just, you know. That's the fir- true. The first, <laughs> That's completely true, but. the first time somebody asks for something, you, you give it to them. And you don't really worry about it. Uh, right. You know, it's in God's hands at that point. If they ask again, you, you kind of, we would sit them down. We would kind of ask some questions, you know. Do you go to church? If you do, why aren't they helping you? Mm-hmm. If, if you don't, you know, we would ask you to be part of the church. And we'll, we'll try to support you and, and, and give right. you a hand up, but you're we're, we're going to ask some things from, for, from mm-hmm. you in the process. So, Which is no different than... So the difference between not leaving your the edges of your field ungleaned and gleaning them and then taking them to someone is very different. Mm. Agreed. And, and so, yeah. Yeah. I, just, I brought that up to say that's not... The equity of that principle is just give every homeless guy you meet a twenty. Right. Yeah, and then, and that this highlights the challenge of of equity theonomy. Yeah, mm-hmm. is is it's a lot of work, and in some sense, a lot of wisdom has to be applied. It's not it's not just stone this person. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, just stone them. Just, just stone them. <laughs> The answer is, is, is <laughs> the answer is stoning. Yeah, that, that's the always answer. it's always stone them. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yeah. So, anything else on point six? No. I think we're good. <clears throat> oh gosh, sorry. Okay. The last point. Point seven. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law, which, by the way, I think is the three uses. No, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. 
the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. Beautifully put. Yep. Put. So they, they only use two scriptures, but the very powerful ones, I think. Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could get life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That is to say, these things go together. The misunderstanding of the law, the pharisaical, legalistic, right, that doesn't go with the gospel. It's contrary. It's a different gospel. The whole book of Galatians would mm-hmm. confirm that. But what Paul is doing in Galatians is saying, actually, your problem is not the law. It's your understanding and your relation. All right. So Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Wow. <laughs> there it was. There it was. The it's, wow. It's, it's, I will change your understanding and relationship to the law. Yeah, so you have to understand the effectual nature of the call there. So we see that, that the obedience to this law is founded upon Christ and his work in you. Mm-hmm. That's the reason it is of grace, because he carries this out, enables, brings forth, prepares beforehand, decrees, shows these things. That's what... Point seven saying it's not saying that because we say that you should be of the command of the law or keep the law as a regenerate person does not mean you relate to it apart from grace or that this is done apart from sweet submission and growing in relationship to Christ. Yeah. Not as a covenant of works. My big, I guess the biggest point would be you cannot be faithful to the New Testament and not understand your relationship to the law. Agreed. You just can't mm-hmm. do it. And yeah. as a, specifically to someone who sees himself as a teacher or discipler in any place, I really think this is the heart of the gospel to some extent. Not not <coughs> not that this is <coughs> sorry, as central as say um, double imputation, substitution, mm-hmm. not not heart of the gospel in that sense or faith alone, but it's a, it's the heart of the practical application of the daily life of the Christian. So I really used to really believe that the goal of the Christian life was be converted and convert others, and that was basically it. And I, I see that practically in the majority of people I talk to, honestly. is like that's the only category they have for what God would have them to do. It's mm-hmm. like uh, evangelism to some extent. And that's it. It's like that's how you do what God would want you to do. And in the New Testament, what you see is God actually um, wants your entire existence um, in every facet. Yeah, so God also hasn't left his obedience ethereal or something of which that cannot be touched or known. Uh, He hasn't left it to emotional prompting. He has given you the standard and he has uh, inscripturated it and handed it down to you. So how do we love God and we love people? We know that because it defines that for us. We don't have to somehow feel our way and grope our way in the dark of this thing. Of this thing, that's that's what I want you to see as well. And that's not contrary to the gospel. Um, that's in in sweet compliance with it. Yeah, I wanted to add on that. That uh, I mean, I think the idea of the Spirit giving life in this situation is really crucial to understanding this whole whole concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we um, you know, we really want to understand how does the law actually work for the Christian? Well, the Spirit is what enables us to operate in this sphere of observation of law. Um, and one thing that came to mind was Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-four, which says, 
Uh, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. So, I mean, it, it, and that's really a new covenant promise right there, which is that your uh, your brother will no longer have to say, Know the Lord. And, I, and when, it, when it says that, I don't think it's saying, like, you know, well, nobody's, nobody, nobody in the in the Christian world will have yeah. to be taught anymore. If that was the case, we wouldn't have pastors and teachers and, right. and that sort of thing. But it does tell us that the law will be established, I think, in the hearts of yeah. in the hearts of uh of of, of believers. Of believers yeah. And they will they will have that standard and the standard will be there because the spirit will impress upon their heart what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Yeah. And I will say I don't think we've talked about this, but the the Westminster and the Savoy are in complete agreement here. So uh, there's a few there's a few addition of phrases to the time of Reformation. I think in point one or point three somewhere in there. But there's a few additions to Savoy that the way, that the 1689 follows here. But the substance thing. These are all three saying the same thing. So the the Baptists aren't in any way uh, stepping out of limb. But they're s- s- completely and squarely in the majority position of the Reformed tradition there. You're saying we're Orthodox? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, good. That's right. Yeah. We didn't come up with it. Whoa. As Baptists in the second <laughs> London. Yeah, like I said, they're following the Savoy verbatim, and there's no substantial difference between that and the Westminster. There you go. I agree with it, too. I, I do, too. Yeah. It's very well yeah. said. So that closing point is beautiful. Yeah. Does a good job. Yeah. I don't yep. think there's a whole lot we can add to that, really. Yeah, so that. there's there's uh-huh. nothing uniquely Baptist about this one. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is just uh, Christian Orthodoxy. If you object yeah. to this one, well, you've got other problems. <laughs> you've got other problems, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, is there really anything uniquely Baptist, though? Uh, baptism. <laughs> <laughs> to the Reformed tradition, anyway. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, that's true. In a lot of ways, Christian tradition in general. I mean, and, bap- you know, yeah. Baptist. We kind of be, march to be our own drums in some ways on that one. Yeah, our greatest weapon may well be our greatest downfall. Yeah, so they they march their own drum too. Nobody's doing covenantal baptisms in the first century. No, no. I'm not going to get into that now. But that's yeah. Nobody said you know what because of circumcision we're doing this. It's always I'm going to wash away original sin. Well, original on top sin. of that, you know, you're talking about baptism, like you know, sacramental baptism in the Roman rite is mm-hmm. different than. Than uh, much much different. Thankfully, they're not the same thing. Thankfully for that, thank God for that. But yeah, they're yeah. not the same. It seems as early as Tertullian and before him even that uh, it, it is truly regenerative baptism. That's yeah. how it's seen. I mean, I would say this. I think uh, the the Didache I think is a good argument for saying that the very earliest Christians baptism for them was pretty similar to what baptism is for us now similar as, as Baptists. it's similar as far sense. as the audience it's as similar as, as audience. audience not because they would have deeply connected mm-hmm. that with actually regenerific things yeah, yeah they have they have a different view in other uh-huh. other points but yeah. they i mean I, I, I think yeah. the mode is something that that yeah <laughs> i agreed there so i think that so if you're a pedo baptist or a credo baptist if you believe in infant or believer you can appeal to church history and find yourself there uh, either way, uh, that's not authoritative, in my opinion. You can appeal to the church fathers and believe anything you want to, anything. Okay, universalism, plumb out. You, you have so. I mean, I can appeal to Origin. Exactly, that's yeah. what I'm saying. For baptism, his catechumens, <laughs> and for universalism, 
<laughs> Eternal Generation, the only thing Origin ever got correct. I'm and, for, that, uh, and for self-mutilation, Self, too. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I'm just saying, our argument doesn't hinge upon that. I don't know what happened here, how I got off on this. But anyway, I digress. I don't want to digress more, but also on the fourfold <laughs> interpretation of Scripture, we could also appeal to Origin on uh, that as yeah. well. Mm. Oh, gosh. Mm. Origin is like a like a, a fun little bag of all kinds of <laughs> he really is. terrible God, ideas. Godfrey said, he, he said, somebody <laughs> asked him, or he said, he said, who's the most influential patristic church father? And he said, Origin. And he said, because he got everything wrong, and everybody had to sort out his myth. So the only thing, like Pretty I said, br- eternal generation, the only thing Origin ever got correct. And it's amazing to me. Origin was like one of. There's only two church fathers that actually knew both Greek and Latin, Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, Origin and Jerome. Yeah. Well, I didn't figure. You know, out. and it's like, man, you you had a lot more knowledge than a lot of these other guys. <laughs> How are you this far off? I don't get this. But well, you know, he, you know, he's a pioneer. So you know, we've been. <laughs> he is a pioneer. He's a pioneer. So we got to keep that in mind. But yeah, he was terrible. <laughs> he's terrible. <laughs> I, I think. I think. The early period of church history, <clears throat> some appeal to it as like, and I hear this all the time, you hear it from premillennialists, then you hear it from Baptists a lot, then you hear it from basically everybody else to some extent on whatever doctrine or point they want to make. It doesn't necessarily follow, and this is going to be probably mm, controversial, but just because it's early doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And oh, yeah. Because if Paul has to write in the 60s, the letter to Corinth. I think it's in like, the 60s is correct, Mitch. I do, too. A little bit before, probably, but that's fine. Late 50s. Okay. Maybe. Maybe Pre- early 50s. Pre-70s. If Paul has to write in the first century. <laughs> in the, the in, early half of the first century. The AD. In the foundational period of the church, if we have this many problems yeah. that have to be corrected by apostolic authority, it's like yeah. it, it really does, as much as I do think, we live in a time where there's no weight given at all to any tradition, which is almost equally as bad. Oh, it is. When you have yeah. trailblazers that say, I figured this out. It's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. No, you didn't. No, that's an ancient heresy, my friend. That's been there for a while. This balance of tradition is something that's very hard to do from a Baptist perspective. It's not hard to do. shouldn't say that. It's, it's not common. Yeah, I'll say that. Oh, yeah, it's not commonly. So it's either you're a you're a Roman Catholic or you're an independent fundamental Baptist, and I'm I'm between that, right? <laughs> Hardcore between that. So good place to be. Yeah, the right place, hopefully. Yeah. So and, when we look at church history, I think the church is actually purifying itself. I think it's actually getting it's, it's actually defining these things better. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would also say, you know, I, I agree with you that, um, yeah, early does not mean right. I mean, there are several things that uh, I would disagree with that are early. Oh, Infant yeah. baptism is early. Oh, for um, sure. There's no way around that. I think um, baptism regeneration baptism is Baptism regeneration is early. Yeah. Uh, the priesthood is early. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the oh, idea yeah. of a of a priesthood, I mean, is is something that begins very early. Yeah. Um so there's a lot of things that begin early. We could even argue the papacy is somewhat early. I mean, I would say mm, 5 600 5 600 years. That's still it, pretty It's it's definitely post Nicene. It's post Nicene, but because that's of still why, why I have a conference. But anything before <laughs> the year 1000 is pretty early. I mean, I agree. Yeah, oh, I for mean, sure. Anything yeah. anything mm-hmm. prior to the schism is pretty pretty is early. pretty early. Yeah. 1054. Yeah. Yep. So I That's mean, the schism, Mitch. 1054. Yeah, I got to get into that. Yeah. Schisms. So, yeah, so I'm just saying you can <clears throat> you can pull up the early church and if you're Pado, Credo, 
universalist. What, it, what should be encouraging, now that we've got down this, this yeah. path, what is encouraging, and it, initially, when I came across church history as someone who had no idea of anything, which in the big scheme of things wasn't terribly long ago, I'm only 30, as a whole, so, uh, but at the same time, it was very discouraging to me initially because I thought maybe this is not what I thought it was. Maybe the Word of God is so open to interpretation that I could never have any assurance, any clarity. Um, but the truth is, when you when you have a right understanding of tradition and the fallibility of men, coupled with the infallibility of Scripture and the what would you say? Um, the clarity. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I don't require a man like me in every doctrinal point in the first century for oh, that yeah. for that to make my faith right. Uh, you know what I mean? I don't know mm-hmm. if that's said correctly. Yeah, they don't have to look exactly like you. At all. Exactly, at all. And, and yeah. in fact, like even someone like Polycarp, who had a lot of problems, was a martyr for the faith. Oh, for sure. So yeah. it's like... I do disagree. This, oh gosh, this is. I disagree yeah. with so much of, of a lot, but at the same time, we're, I actually believe that we're saved by grace alone, right? Yeah. And, and in some sense, that that's coupled with knowledge and coupled with faith and accurate faith. But in another sense, like I guarantee you, in a hundred years, it will be a lot clearer to 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 men what my errors were. Yeah. Right? So the, the the complete straw man. We can end whenever you want. The complete straw man of the Protestant position is the church died and then revived in 1517. That is not the Protestant position whatsoever. That's the uh, restoration position. Yeah, that is n- in no way the reform position. The reform position is, hey, we have more continuity with the followers than Rome. If you read the Institutes, what you're going to continually read, citation after citation, is the church fathers. Apostolic authority is what the apostles taught, not yeah. who sits in, who their, sits in their seat. Uh-huh. There is no apostolic mm-hmm. decision. Is there? Yeah. I think uh, quite a few episodes would be beneficial on tradition. And, yeah. and But that's For that's sure. another time, I suppose. Yeah. But uh, what is most encouraging, I think, some, what I drew from it in yeah. a positive way, is I am not Joseph Smith's heir. Right. Like, and I'm not, I'm not a newcomer. I'm also not the heir of Billy Graham either, or Charles Finney. <laughs> the church doesn't start yeah, yeah. With, with him. So, yeah. so I, that's not my church history. My church history goes all the way back to Christ and all the way back to creation. Like, I yeah. believe yeah. that, um, and not not just Baptists, as, as popular as that is, the Trail of Blood thing. Um, yeah, they're not around. No. Neither and not, not Presbyterians. In, yeah. <laughs> they're just no, not no, there. No, no. You know what I mean? So I, I do believe um, even Presbyterianism and, and modern, yeah. well, Semi-modern Baptist positions are more faithful to the text, more glorifying to God. Oh yeah. At the same time, <laughs> so so we we can disagree with the church fathers on many many things. What you can't disagree with them on is Christology. Mm. It is Trinitarian theology. So that's what's hammered out really in the Protestics. What's hammered out for us is yeah, you can disagree with me as a Baptist. You can't disagree with me about justification. You can't disagree with me about that and be a Christian. So that's the purifying view. So we get the, what the first nine, eight hundred years of the church in its, in its infancy, it's hammering out, it's hammering out Trinitarian theology, Christology, who is his identity. Then the Reformation comes. What is the relationship to this justification? They hammered that out, and we got those two. And church history is going to continue to do those things as we get more and more refined, I think, in, in our true biblical and sanctified manner. 
and that ties into my eschatology pretty good. But that, that's that, that's not important. <laughs> mm. Closing remarks. Yeah, law of God. It's good. Keep it. <laughs> as, as as a command, not as a covenant. Mm. I just thought I would uh, close with a land word. the ship, Nathan. Word, word of scripture that. here. Um, I referenced Psalm one nineteen last week. I just wanted to read uh, Psalm one nineteen, beginning of verse seventeen. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. You rebuke the proud, the cursed, who stray from your commandments. Remove from me reproach and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Hmm. Amen. Appreciate that, Nate. It's hard to argue with the psalmist. <laughs> yeah. He is sure liked the law of God. He, he? he liked the law a lot. He sure did. Next week, chapter 20 of the gospel and the stand of grace thereof. <laughs>